Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. I truly believe that the what can start a conversation, but the why can open up one's soul. And I hope if you've been listening this season, you can hear the depth of people's souls as they open up about ancient spiritual practices and rhythms that truly can rekindle faith and renew your soul. To all of you who have listened this entire season, like my dad, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you tuning in each week. And if you're a new listener, I am really glad you have decided to listen to this podcast because we all know there are way too many podcasts in the world right now. So I I do feel great appreciation that you're taking some time to listen to this. In this episode, I have the honor to have a conversation with Steve Austin. Steve is an author, podcaster, life coach, and former pastor. Much of his work centers on mental health and faith, which is a major part of his story as Steve nearly died from suicide after suffering from depression, anxiety, and PTSD. About 10 minutes into our conversation, I thought, yeah, this guy and I could be friends. We, we can make this work. And we talk a lot in this, in this conversation. We talk about deconstructing our faith. We talk about doubt, how to be a Christian agnostic, which I think you will find very intriguing, and how breathing has had a profound impact on both our lives. I truly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm really thankful for the brave work Steve is doing around mental health and faith. To learn more about Steve, check out his website, catchingyourbreath.com, as well as his book and his podcast by the same name. As always, this podcast is written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. And with that, here is my interview with Steve Austin. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we finally connected and uh, are having this conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. I'd love for you to start just by telling listeners not only a little bit about who you are personally, but what do you do professionally? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks again for having me. Um, Personally, I'm a a lifelong resident of Birmingham, Alabama. I've been married to Lindsay for 13 years. We have two awesome kiddos. Uh, Ben is eight, about to turn nine, and Caroline is six, going on like 26. Uh, professionally, a <laughs> uh, little bit of a jack of all trades. I um, have been a sign language interpreter for many years. Uh, started interpret, uh, sorry, started signing at the age of twelve, and uh, had a, a friend in middle school who was deaf, and uh, been interpreting professionally since two thousand eight. Um, in addition to that, uh, for about ten years, served as a youth pastor and or worship leader, um, been writing since kindergarten and don't show any signs of slowing down and uh, serve as an emotional health coach. Um, and then pre-COVID, I was traveling and speaking a whole lot. So looking forward to that picking back up when all this craziness settles down. <laughs> yes, we all are. That's true. I was fortunate to read your book not too long ago, Catch one of your books, I should say Catching Your Breath. Um, and that actually is a couple years old. So tell us a little bit about that book um, and kind of who you wrote it for. 
Absolutely. Well, thanks for reading it. Um, for, I guess, anyone who's followed me very long, they probably think of me in some way as the guy who writes or speaks about life at the intersection of Christianity and mental health. Um, so whether it's writing books or blogging or podcasting or speaking, that's that's my wheelhouse. And so my first um, self-published book, From Pastor to a Psych Ward, was all about my own journey with mental illness, recovery from a suicide attempt several years ago. Uh, then my second book, uh, Self-Care for the Wounded Soul, was also written for folks at that same intersection, sort of a, a self-care journal. And then Catching Your Breath came along several years after um, I began theological deconstruction, deconstructing my, my childhood faith narrative. And um, so deconstruction and then years of recovery from, gosh, a suicide attempt, uh, sexual abuse as a child, um, fear and shame-based theology, all of that sort of birthed catching your breath as a way to sort of cast a wider net, to use really Christianese language. But I wanted to invite people in that wouldn't necessarily call themselves a Christian, or maybe, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but I also really like some of these Buddhist principles or, you know, whatever that is. Um, so it's, it is not strictly a Christian book. It's a book, and it's not strictly a book about mental illness or about suicide prevention. It's, it was intended to be a book that says whoever you are from whatever walk of life, whatever faith journey, spiritual journey, if any, if you feel completely overwhelmed by life, I get it. I've been there. You're safe here. And so it's sort of half memoir and then half uh, self-help, I guess. Yeah. And I see, I see that throughout the whole book, this idea of <clears throat> you embodying a lot of these things, of catching your breath from religious, toxic theology, or just kind of a burnt out, not working religion, as well as mental health, as well as just life in general when it's overwhelming. So it does, I mean, you kind of embody that as some of the stories you share in that book. Um, and so it is kind of, it. as I read, I was like, oh, this is really applicable to a lot of people as a a burnt out pastor or Christian to someone who is pursuing a spiritual quest, but is struggling with mental illness and everything in between. Um, but you mentioned your deconstruction of your faith. Um, and can you share a little bit more about that? What did, what brought that on? Um, what did it look like? And if there was a point, how, how did your faith rekindle or how did your faith re how did you reconstruct some of that faith? Yes. So I actually started deconstructing my second year of ministry school. So I was 19 or 20, uh, reading the Bible cover to cover, line by line for the first time in my life. I'd been raised in church all my life, uh, but this was the first time that the Bible hadn't been spoon fed to me by the straight white middle-aged guy. And so I'm, I'm reading and learning and it was fascinating and also really scary because there are parts throughout scripture where I'm going, whoa, this, this is not what I was taught. What this says is not, you know, what I was given. Um, and I noticed there was a lot of personal opinion. I noticed there was a lot of, um, 
Republican politics added into <laughs> the sermons that I was receiving as a kid, good or bad, that there, there was just a whole lot of personal input put in there. And so reading it for the first time, I went, man, there's so much more here. So um, another thing that happened the beginning of that second year of ministry school, one of my roommates um, was expelled. Um, we found out that he was gay. And this guy was my brother from another mother. I, I just absolutely adored him. One of my best friends and still is to this day. And even though we're talking almost 20 years ago, I wouldn't have called myself affirming at that time. I wouldn't even have that language 20 years ago, but this was my friend. And I certainly affirmed him and I couldn't imagine kicking him out of any circle that he belonged in, that I belonged in. So that was a biggie for me as well. Um, deconstruction for me has been like this 15-year journey. There's this constant cycle of deconstruct, reconstruct, deconstruct, reconstruct. And I think maybe that's true for a lot of people. If you keep an open mind, if you're constantly reading, if you're always wanting to learn that that there is that, that sort of disorientation, reorientation thing that Rohr talks about so well, um, the, the darkest part of deconstruction for me, which was probably five years ago, something like that, I was really in a, a sort of a free fall of deconstruction, and I thought I might deconvert. I was reading some heavy stuff from some sort of former Christians who were pretty angry and just discounting everything, and I wasn't filling myself up with other things. And so I, I really sort of tiptoed toward that line of maybe I just don't believe anything anymore. Um, I was on top of that. I was, I was just exhausted by the brand of evangelical Christianity I was raised in. Um, but I think the thing that held me in the midst of all that, the th and the thing that sort of pulled me back is that I couldn't get away from this experience I had in the psych ward. So I'm 29 years old. I've been a pastor for about 10 years at this point, um, or serving in ministry. And I'm, I've attempted suicide. I'm lying in this hospital bed. I'm numb from the waist down. They're trying to figure out if my liver is going to fail. I've taken so many um, meds. And I'm laying there in that bed. It's about day three of being in ICU. I'm all alone. And I feel this warm hand on my chest as real as if you put your hand on my chest right now. And I hear what I describe as an inaudible whisper. It was this, this voiceless voice that I can't explain. You can say, man, those were some really good drugs, right? Or, or maybe not. But I hear this inaudible, inaudible voice say, I'm not finished with you yet. And it, it changed my life. And so, and it, it changed my life because I was at the lowest of the low. I hated myself. I, I felt like even more of a failure because I couldn't even get a suicide attempt right. And here's this God of grace showing up going, your story's not over. There's more to this. Just just hang on. The best is yet to come, right? Let's use all the Christianese we can possibly use. But, but there are better days coming. And that one blip, that one little moment in my life is the one thing when, you know, reasoning would tell me otherwise, when science might try to say something else, when I could rationalize so much away, that mystical 
spiritual moment that I can't possibly explain or prove is the one thing that keeps me coming back. Hmm. Wow. And that, it really did have a, that moment kind of changed the trajectory of your life. You better believe it. Yep. Yeah. I think that it's, it's amazing. I'm reading a book on Christian mystics right now. And some of the, some of the descriptions in that book talk about these mis like you're saying, a mystical experience that you can't explain, but you, you experience them. And the fact that you can't explain them, but you can explain the experience that those often are the, the most real and authentic moments of faith in your life. And that changes everything. It does. It doesn't do away with the doubt. The doubts are still there. The mm. questions are still there. The holes in my faith are still there. But I think that makes the faith part that much more genuine, that much mm. stronger to go, yeah, I got all these questions and I, and I won't say that I don't, but <laughs> I still hold on to that one experience that absolutely changed my life. That is awesome. I'm, it's, it's a message that I think we all need to hear. I'm, you're not done yet. Yeah. Um, and I wish too, you, you brought up this, the cycle almost of uh, deconstruction, reconstruction, deconstruction. And I was talking on another podcast, similar. Someone said, this is a regular rhythm of the faith. And I wish I learned that earlier on. I wish I learned, right, like as a teenager or as a child or in college, that faith, there are, I always, I guess I always thought like the more faith you had, the more right you became and the more secure you became. And what I've discovered is the the deconstruction reconstruction is this ongoing thing, and it happens every few years or every decade or every other week sometimes. Um, and how important that would be for us as people of who practice spirituality. And wouldn't it be powerful if more of our faith leaders didn't always have an answer? But if we or they were willing to say, you know what, I don't know, or, or mm, here's a possibility, right? right? Just that word, here's a possibility, changes things. But yeah, yeah I think the more that we can get away from certainty, um, the more that we can find God in our, in our humanity, in our questions and doubts, and that, man, that God's present with us in the midst of all that is, is just right. beautiful to me. Yeah. I had a mentor about 10 years ago, maybe even longer than that, 15 years ago. She'd say, well, maybe you're right too. And she said that all the time, especially on hot topic debates of theology. Well, maybe they're right too. Maybe I'm right too. And it always, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, huh? How, what are you talking about? But I, I've so appreciated that question um, and want to use it more often or statement, I should say, use it more often. Yeah, maybe they're right too. And maybe I'm wrong too. Um, such a humbling, humbling thing. Um, I want to go, one thing you mentioned in your book, and you alluded to it just a few minutes ago, but you talk about being a Christian agnostic, um, which is a cool term. So, and probably alarming for some others, probably. I'm sure you've gotten feedback Don't on that. Don't turn this off yet, friends. <laughs> just wait, give me five minutes. 
<laughs> so fill us in on, on what you mean by that and how you have taken on kind of that, that part of an identity. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's one of my very, very favorite things to talk about. So in the book, the definition that I use for agnostic is a person who holds neither of two opposing positions on a topic. So it goes right back to what you were talking about with your mentor to say, hmm, maybe they're right. Or, hmm, maybe I'm wrong, right? That it's it's this great big, it is, it's a great big maybe. Um, so I'll read that definition one more time. A person who holds neither of two opposing positions on a topic. That's the way I define agnostic. But then I think that you also have to define Christian because Christian can mean a million different things today. So for me, being a Christian is holding the example and the teachings of Jesus as central to my life. That's being a Christian for me. I know there are a million pieces of theology that we could debate. And well, but what about this? And oh, but do you... I'm not, I'm not worried about any of that. For this conversation, holding the life, the example, the teachings of Jesus as central to who I am, that makes me a Christian. Um, and I think that if that is true, if you hold the life and the teachings of Jesus as central, then that means love is the motivation for everything that you say, everything that you do, because God is love and Jesus is this perfect example of God. He's this primo example of love and love makes room, right, for everyone, uh, the outcasts, the, the, the misfits. We see Jesus constantly drawing this larger circle, bringing everyone in. So, so that's Christian for me. So, so love is at the center. Love as made manifest in the life and teachings of Jesus. And, and then agnostic for me, like put it really simply, is the ability to say, I don't know. I don't know. Um, when it comes to all the ins and outs of Christian history, Christian theology, to be able to say, I don't know, and to live in the I don't knowness of of my spiritual journey, to say that I'm still embracing my faith, that this Jesus person really matters a whole lot to me. And also I'm not demonizing my doubts. So sort of holding the tension between the two and and believing, like I said a minute ago, that Jesus is walking with me every step of the way. So, so for me, Jesus is God. Jesus is the primo example of divine love. But there are some really great, really similar balances of love and truth in the teachings of the Buddha of Gandhi, of Rumi, of Mr. Rogers, of Martin Luther King Jr., right? And I used to have to say, but no, 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 and discount those others just to put Jesus on this great big pedestal. And if that's what you do, that's okay. Um, but it doesn't, that, that doesn't confuse me anymore, that there are some really great teachers out there, some spiritual teachers, some wisdom teachers out there that we have seen through the ages that have some great things to teach us. And if you want to latch on to some of those things, awesome. I don't think it makes you less of a Christian. Um, I think it makes you honest. I think it makes you a human. So yeah, I hope that I sort of talked around what being a Christian agnostic means to me. It's, it's holding Jesus at the center of my life and 
all those other things that people love to debate, all those theobrogens on Twitter, um, me saying, eh, I don't know. And maybe I don't care. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I, I, as you were speaking, it reminded me of Thomas, who's one of my favorite biblical characters in the New Testament. And I love it because he only appears six times, or his name is listed six times. And three of them, I think, are just the list of the disciples. And one, he says something like, Jesus says, we're going down to Jerusalem, and Thomas is bold and is like, yeah, us too, we'll die with you. And then the other two times are the famous doubting Thomas scene. And what I love about that text is it says that the disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead, told Thomas, and Thomas was like, there's no way, I'm not going to believe that until I touch his wounds and touch his side. And then the text, which I missed for the longest time, says, and a week, a week later, Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was there. So for a whole week, Thomas doesn't believe. And he's hanging out with all these other disciples who are probably like, woohoo, Jesus, he's raised from the dead. And he's like, no, I'm not believing it. And what that week must have been like for him, right? Like to be in doubt, to be like, no way, to maybe feel shame that like he doesn't believe what his group believes anymore. Like he's not in the in-group anymore. And like how lonely that would be, right? Like I've experienced that, right? And yet then when Jesus does appear a week later, the first thing he does is he says, peace be with you, which is cool because he just like walked through a wall or whatever, you know, like that's smart. Be like, calm down, peace. Like, uh, I'm not here to attack you. Um, but then he goes directly to Thomas directly to Thomas. And he doesn't say, you idiot, you fool. Why didn't you listen to the teachings? Why didn't you believe what you were supposed to believe? Um, he says, touch my side and then don't doubt, believe. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, and in some ways, it, it, I feel like it, that's a perfect illustration of the Christian agnostic, that you're in this moment, you're in this week of, I don't know if I believe that. My friends do, or these people do. And it's not until you have that mystical experience that maybe you could say, oh yeah, I do believe. And, you know, and that changed Thomas's life, um, eventually was martyred and all that. Um, so I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture, but I love that term, the Christian agnostic. It's so, I think it's much more freeing that we don't have to have it right, um, that we can hold things loosely and still trust that faith can be important in our lives and that we can have these experiences where we encounter the divine love. Absolutely. I think when you talk about Thomas, it makes me think about maybe my favorite day in the church calendar um, is Holy Saturday, that day in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Okay, so we know Thomas doubted. How many of the rest of them are doubting? It's noon on Saturday. It's five o'clock Saturday evening. It's 10 o'clock Saturday night. You know, like they're how, come on, you know, some of them, if not all, were going, oh my gosh, what if this was all a crock? Right. <laughs> I've wasted three years of my life. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So, yeah, I love the, I love that the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about it, but it kind of leaves it up to us to go, wonder what that was like. That had to be, those had to be three pretty stressful days. <laughs> yeah. And how many of us live those days, even in our lives, right? All the time. I want to transition a little bit. You you talk a lot about breathing and even the title of your book, Catching Your Breath, but how breathing 
really kind of transformed your life um, and faith and enabled you kind of to hear this. You kind of frame it as like uh, how you how you can hear a rhythm in the cosmos, the world all around you. Um, can you share a little bit about that breathing? And then even just before this call, you were talking about you were writing a chapter on breathing prayer. So I'd love for you to give us a sneak peek of that chapter even um, and what that meant. Absolutely. How about, what if I just read you a little snippet from Catching Your Breath? Oh, look at that. There we go. Kind of on the rhythm. Will that work? Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, this is from the very last page of the book. I stood barefoot in the cold December sand two days before New Year's, watching the waves wash over my feet, playing their tireless melody, inviting my soul to sigh again. And sigh it did. The water swept in and out, brushing sand over my toes and quickly pulling it back again, the ocean inhaling and exhaling, whispering over creation, this is good. It might sound too mystical or new agey for most Christians. It might sound too Jesus-y for those who don't connect with Christianity. But that cold weekend, as one year ended and another began, God was doing a work of rest and restoration in my soul, beyond anything I may ever be able to comprehend or explain fully with words. And isn't that how it is with a deeply transformative experience? We can't ever seem to fully explain it to someone else. We just know we've forever been altered. Even in my doubt, God kept impressing on me the universality of rest and repeat, rhythm and rhyme, start and stop. Like my friend Sue, to whom this book is dedicated, often reminds me, the world has an axis and I don't have to do anything to keep it spinning. The merry-go-round has a motor, Sue says. All you have to do is get on it and ride. This weekend retreat was right after my free fall of deconstruction, and I was desperate to find God again. Yes, there were doubts, loads of uncertainty, and the stretching tension of all I couldn't explain or understand. But in my soul, there remained a longing for something or someone more, and something or someone met me. It's like God just wrapped up my entire essence in my grandma's quilt and said, I'm right here. You don't have to do a damn thing to find me or catch my attention. Be still. Let's just breathe together. Listen to how I do it. Beautiful. Thanks. So, um, yeah, you were asking about a sneak peek um, at this new book. I'd be glad to read you a little snippet from that if you got a minute. Okay, so uh, this year has been crazy. I'm working on two books in one year, and uh, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. But <laughs> the publishers came to me, and I think I would have been crazy to say no. So uh, I'm just finishing up my second book of the year, and it's called Slow Miracles. Uh, and it's it's going to be 99 entries broken up into 14 weekly themes. And this particular week, it's week nine in the book as it's written right now. And week nine is on coming to stillness. And this particular entry uh, is currently titled Begin with the Breath. So I open talking about the Old Testament when God meets Moses at the burning bush and tells him to go to Pharaoh, ordering Pharaoh to free God's children. And Moses asks God, who should I tell him sent me? In other words, on whose authority am I taking this word back to my people? And from the blazing bush, God says to Moses, 
I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. That's from Exodus 3, 14. So in Hebrew, I am who I am is translated Y-H-V-H. And the anglicized version of that tetragrammation is Yahweh. It's the name for God, the creator, the one who creates something from nothing. So the way I read this is God literally tells Moses, tell the Pharaoh, the one who has the power over his every inhale and exhale sent you. The one who breathed creation into existence is the one who is sending you this day. That's how I read it. The breath has power. It's that same breath that Jesus exhaled on the disciples in John 20, 22, when he told them, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's that very same breath that met me in ICU whispering, I'm not finished with you yet. So keep that in mind today as we dive into this guided breath prayer. Perhaps you've never heard of a breath prayer. So let's begin with a quick introduction. Sitting atop the toaster oven in my kitchen is a small wooden sign that reads, inhale the present, exhale the past. Said another way, it might read, inhale peace, exhale anxiety. Or feel free to fill in the blank with whatever you need to breathe in and whatever you need to let go of today. A breath prayer is precisely that, a prayer you can say as you inhale and exhale. The beauty of a breath prayer is that you can offer it up at any time, any place. You don't have to purchase a meditation cushion or light candles or sit cross-legged touching your thumb to your index finger and humming om. While that is exactly what I do at certain times, a breath prayer doesn't require anything other than your attention and your breath. So whether you're sitting in the parking lot at work, hiding out in your car before the next dreaded meeting, or swimming laps at the pool, or standing in the shower hoping your children don't kill each other, you can literally offer a breath prayer in any setting. How does it work? Much like the sign that sits on my toaster oven, you meditate on a particular phrase as you inhale and pray a response to that thought on the exhale. It helps to rid yourself of any external distractions for a few moments. So in the example of sitting in the parking lot at work, maybe you silence your phone or turn off the car stereo while you pray. Here are just a few examples of breath prayers. On the inhale, come. On the exhale, Lord Jesus. So come, Lord Jesus. That's from Revelation 22, 20. Another one would be inhale with the word peace. Exhale, be still peace be still from Psalm 4610. One more would be inhale when I am afraid, exhale, I will trust you from Psalm 27.1. So there's your little sneak peek from the second book of next year. Everyone go buy it. Mark the calendars. Welcome to your time machine. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you, how did you discover a breath prayer or how, how was that part of your journey? Yeah, my, um, so this cracks me up today, but my introduction to deconstruction came through Brennan Manning, uh, the ragamuffin gospel, which now I go read that and go, that's a really conservative theology. Like this is not anything crazy, but for me growing up very fundamental, uh, it was all about, you know, all the external things that you do or don't do. If it looks good, smells good, tastes good, feels good, it's probably a sin. And so the idea of a Brennan Manning going, 
you know, God loves you as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be as you should be. That was like mind blowing 20 years ago for me. And in uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, he introduces the idea of a breath prayer and he says, Abba, I belong to you. That's his breath prayer that he goes to all the time. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. And I prayed that prayer for years. Anytime that I would, you know, shame would creep in going, you're a worthless piece of crap and nothing you ever do is going to be good enough to earn my love. I'd go, Abba, I belong to you. And so, yeah, it's, it's stuck with me for years and years now. What about you? I think in graduate school was when I... Um, was introduced to specifically the Jesus prayer, like the ancient Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. I think before that, because I was an actor and a singer and a dancer, the breath was so important to everything we did as performing. Um, yeah. That when you were dancing on stage, you choreographers would often have like less high impact dancing so you could catch your breath and still sing. Um, the way we learned how to breathe to sing louder in musicals or whatever and from the diaphragm. So I think there was always this teaching of breath. I think in undergraduate and even high school when I was in voice lessons, I remember one of my voice teachers taught me as you're laying down in, to sleep, pray or breathe how you breathe uh, as a singer and it relaxes you. So I think very, uh, very early on, yeah, learning to breathe as a relaxation technique was important. And then to connect it with prayer, I remember having a moment in seminary sitting next to students and I would use the breath prayer to pray for them, whoever sat on either side of me during the class period. It was a really neat practice. I love that. Yeah. And then over time, it's really adapted. I think probably the one I use the most right now, or in the last, maybe even the last few years, has been um, God of God of peace and love cast out my fear and anxiety. And that one, especially in a pandemic, has been one that I have gone to quite regularly. Wait, um, there's a pandemic going on? I think so. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And it and and that, you know, comes from um first John and some other passages where the God's perfect love can cast out all fear. And so the God of peace, the God of love can cast out any fear and anxiety that I might hold. Um, and it brings you back to the moment, right? I think with anxiety or stress or a to-do list, it's really easy to go to what I have to do next in my day rather than just being in the moment and that it really settles everything. So there's been a, I've discovered there's a, a spiritual element to it, but there's also a physical element to it. Um, and so I think, it gets me in tune to my body. It gets me in tune to God. It, it gets me more aligned with my emotions and my mind. So there's, there's a lot of benefits I've found to it. 100%. You ready for a shameless plug? Sure. <laughs> you were talking about your to-do list. So in my, uh, there's a free download on my website, which is catchingyourbreath.com, and it's the Catching Your Breath Journal. And there's nine downloadable printable worksheets that you can snag. But one of the worksheets in that journal is my not-to-do list. 
because I need that reminder all the time. Like I don't have to check off the, like you can just take a break. So here's the things I don't have to do today. And that can be as deeply like spiritual and philosophical as you want it to be, or it can be like very practical. Okay, you know what? I can get to these things tomorrow. So if you want a not to-do list, you can go to my website and download it. I'm, I might have to do that because <laughs> my to-do list actually is literally right here. Like right here it is. There's <laughs> two things checked off and one has an arrow saying I have to do it later. <laughs> so, <laughs> Steve, if people want to get connected to you and learn more about who you are, but then also your upcoming projects and books, how can people learn about you? But then also how can people support the work you're doing? Yes. So the very best thing to do is go to IamSteveAustin.com. From there, you can find my Twitter, which is the same thing, at IamSteveAustin. But IamSteveAustin.com, you can get to my blog, you can get to my podcast, my courses, my coaching, my books. It's all there at IamSteveAustin.com. Well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate your time, your conversation, and um, appreciate the work you've done Uh, in yourself, but then also how that work is helping so many others. So it's been fun to kind of follow your journey for a while and to read your books and to see your writing and know your ups and downs. And like you said, God's not done with you yet. Um, And that message uh, needs to be heard by others, but also that there are others who are going through similar things and you have, you're a coach and a mentor for them. And It's really cool. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to connect. I enjoy following you on on social media as well. So nice to put a face with the name and, and get to have a real conversation. So thanks for the opportunity. Friends, I hope that was an enjoyable conversation for you. Again, if you want to learn more about Steve, check out his website, catchingyourbreath.com. And be sure to pick up a copy of his book and check out his podcast. Also, if you could do me a huge favor, can you please leave a review and rating of this podcast on Apple Podcasts? It's a huge help. It allows more people to find the podcast and it beats the algorithm so more people will listen. I am hoping to get about 10 more reviews this week. So if you've listened for a while, and even if you've listened just once, please go leave a rating and review. That would be, well, it would warm my heart. Also, if you can share this podcast on your social media, that is another great way to spread the word about these conversations and about these ancient spiritual practices. If you want more information about me, check out my website, nathanalbert.com. I have a bunch of blog posts and other things, resources there for you as well. So friends, as you continue to deconstruct your faith, as you learn to live as a Christian agnostic and allow yourself to breathe, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness 